Now to go back. Oh, oh no. Now you're ready. <laughs> we're going to be moving into our sermon now in which it's, uh, we're going through the book of Colossians. And we are in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. So we've been looking at this book that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And we're just following the text of the book and looking at what Paul had to say to the church in Colossae. And looking at how that applies to us today. And we've been kind of unpacking information about Colossae as we go. So what we've figured out so far is that Colossae was a, a relatively small, medium to small town that was not very important. It certainly wasn't as important as Laodicea, which was the bigger town nearby. And it's in fact so unimportant that to this day it has not been excavated. They know where it is. It's a big mound. Nobody's dug it up. Um, which is surprising considering it was a town that received a letter from Paul. But that just tells you that it's not a very important town. But it was important to Paul. It was, it was important to Paul because as we saw in the first section of chapter 1, Paul praises them as a church that is bearing fruit for the gospel, and they're part of the gospel bearing fruit all over the world. So the church in Colossae was doing the right thing. They were important to Paul because Paul had never been there. Paul had never met them. He just knew the guy who planted their church, but he still wrote this letter to them, first and foremost, to praise them for bearing fruit for the gospel. And what we learned in that first sermon is that bearing fruit in the New Testament does not refer to getting baptisms. It refers to changes in behavior. The fruit, whenever the New Testament talks about fruit, it's talking about Christian behavior. You have the fruit of the Spirit, each time when it's talking about fruit, it's talking about the changes in, in behavior, and the most common theme is the unique bond of love within a congregation. And that's really what Paul is highlighting in chapter 1 in the first section, is that the Colossians have a community that is uniquely bound in love because they are fully committed to the reign of Jesus as king. So first, Paul praises them for being a fruit-bearing church, and then, last week, we looked at the next section where he kind of projects for them the next step, where he wants them to go, and what this letter is going to be motivating them to do, which is to lead a life that pleases God. And remember, we talked about how it's not just checking the boxes because God is a meticulous rule keeper, and you, he's happy if you tick the boxes, and he's unhappy if you don't. But it's actually, it was connected with the artwork of the tabernacle, this is supposed to be a, a beautiful life, a life that God enjoys, a life that we offer to him in gratitude for our salvation. But that life, that kind of a life, asks a lot of us. It asks of us a total commitment to following Jesus. And so as we move into this next section, which is one of the more famous passages in Colossians, I'm going to argue that Paul, what Paul is doing is he is encouraging them, he's convincing them of why Jesus is worth that 100% commitment that it takes to lead a life that pleases God. Because leading a life that pleases God can't be just one corner of your life. You can't say, all right, I'll please God in everything but my finances. I'll please God in everything but my personal life. I'll please God in everything but the way I speak. You can't hold anything back if you're going to have a life that pleases God. And so if you're going to take on that enterprise, we should know that it's worth it. And that's what Paul is going to get into in this next passage, is why we can with confidence invest in obedience to Jesus. 
I'll encourage you to have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1 as we go through the sermon. And I'll also encourage you, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage begins in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, one of the important things about doing a series like this, where we read through the book verse by verse, is that our goal is to understand the Bible in its own context. What is Paul saying to the Colossians? And then we learn from what he's saying to them in their context, rather than taking the Bible as speaking directly to our context. Because and we have a very different context. And when we have very different scenarios that jump to our mind when it comes to how do we use these verses. And one of the most common ones where I have seen this verse come up with, uh, these verses come, come up, is when you're preparing for that inevitable moment when you have a knock on the door or the doorbell rings and there are a pair of people there who want to talk to you about Jesus. And they have very different beliefs about who Jesus is. And so we pull out our Bibles and we go to our reference verses where we know we can t explain to people that Jesus really is God. And one of those that we go to is Colossians. And Colossians is a very common place for us to get into our own debates about who Jesus is. That is not the context or the debate that Paul was getting into when he wrote this. Now, this passage, these passages can help us in discerning, certainly help us in discerning who Jesus is. But that's not who Paul had in mind. He didn't have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in mind when he wrote this passage. He, wasn't, he didn't have that debate in mind. He had a different debate in mind. So what I want to do is I want to start by understanding the context that the Colossian Christians were in. If they had people coming door to door talking to them about the other religions that were available, what would they have been talking about? And also remember, this is an entirely first-generation church. So all of these people had started out outside of Christianity. So it wasn't just someone coming door to door telling you the good news of Zeus. It was also your family when you went home for Thanksgiving and they all still started by, you know, worshiping a god or doing something else, right? Like, so they're steeped in these other religions that are constantly pulling them away from what they're, being, what they're hearing from the apostles and what they're, they're learning and, and saying as they worship. There are two main temptations, two main ways of, of doing religion in Colossae. 
The first one is the way the Gentiles worship. The Gentiles practice polytheism, many gods. And the thing about believing in many gods is there's a whole wide range of gods. You can probably name a few of them. Maybe just because you've seen them in movies or things like that, you could probably name Zeus or Hercules or Ares or Hera or, you know, there's a whole list. Now, those are the big names, right? Those are the major league gods that regular people probably didn't pray to or worship very often um, because those were like, that's the celebrities went to those, those gods. You know, if you're a regular person, you have your own regular small-scale gods that you pray to in your household, and then maybe your guild has a god of, like, chimney sweeps and things like that. But the whole idea, uh, like, there are tons and tons of gods, and the reason for that is because the whole philosophy of pagan religion, of Gentile religion, was hedging your bets. It was playing the stock market. Worship this God over here because this God is really good at giving you more crops. This God, though, you heard from your neighbors that this God is the one you want to go to if you want a big family. And hey, that guy down the street, he worshiped this God to get ahead in his business, and that seemed to work. So I'll add them to the portfolio. It would be foolish to invest everything in one God because one God can't do it all. There's so many powers out there that you really want to spread out your investment. You want to have a diverse portfolio right? Because that's how you get through life. And so they would worship many, many gods. And it, didn't, it, would, it was actually weird for them to worship only one god. Uh, there were some people who would put, make one god their favorite god, but they still believed in all the other gods, and they would still go and worship other gods when they needed something from those gods. But Gentiles worshiped multiple gods in order to hedge their bets. That was just their approach. That, you know, there's, just like you wouldn't go to one business for everything— Right? Like you wouldn't go to the farmer's market to get your lumber and your, your blacksmith work done. Like you go to different people for different things, you go to different gods for different things. And this is why, if you're familiar with some stories in the Old Testament, there will be, there will be Gentile kings that at the drop of a hat will start worshiping the God of Israel. Right? Like Nebuchadnezzar, like that, just starts worshiping the God of Israel. Um, Pharaoh will do it. Um, the king of Nineveh, just all of a sudden start worshiping the God of Israel without seeming to go through some kind of conversion. It's because they didn't go through a conversion. They still believe in all the other gods, but they've had it proven to them that this God has power. So you want to keep that, you want to add that God to your portfolio, right? So this is their approach to religion. You, you worship a lot of different gods because you want as many of them on your side as possible. That's how the Gentiles did things. The Jews, on the other hand, were monotheists. They believed there was only one God, and that one God could be worshipped in one place, the temple, and that one God had set very strict rules for under what circumstances you can access his presence in that temple through the law of Moses. You had to be circumcised. You had to be ceremonially clean, which means you had to have only eaten certain foods. You couldn't have handled any dead bodies. You had to have washed your hands in certain ways. All these different things you had to do in order to access the presence of God. Now, one of the obstacles for Jews is the fact that at this point, they've been spread all around the known world, and so it's very difficult for them to get to the temple. They might get there once or twice in their lives, unless they're wealthy, uh, they might never get there, so they need ways to worship God and to connect with God where they are. And so in Colossae, what's happening in other places, what's happening is the Jews would focus on those rules and rituals that you had to do in order to access the temple. 
Like those are really important. Even though, according to the law of Moses, the, the, the cleanliness rules only matter for, they, they don't make you a morally good or bad person. They just determine whether you can go into the temple that day. But these people who have no access to the temple, they think, well, those rules are the way you, get, you can get into God's presence. So even though I'm out here in Colossae, I'm going to focus on keeping those rules that would allow me to get into the temple if I was there. And so they focused on, um, so the Jews relied on these religious gestures in order to encounter God. Now, historically, one of the problems that you'll see throughout the Old Testament, and it continued until the second temple was destroyed, is that they would often focus exclusively on those gestures and basically say, well, if I can get in the room, that's good enough. If I'm clean so that I can get in the temple, I don't actually need to be on you know, uh, pursuing God's agenda. I don't actually need to be all that. I can just get into the temple, do my time in the temple, and then go out and do whatever I want with my life. And so they, can, they thought that they could substitute, they had this habit of substituting religious gestures for actual loyalty to God. And that's the major tension of the Old Testament. And so at this time, there were even still Jewish Christians who were saying it's really all about those rituals that let you get into God's presence. So Paul is speaking to a church in this context, and is tell- he's basically, he's told them, don't invest in other gods, don't invest in the temple, invest 100% in Jesus. And there's a lot of people out there trying to convince the Colossians to, to invest in other ways. So Paul's goal with this passage is to encourage the Colossians to invest their lives in Jesus alone. That's the goal. He wants to encourage them that they're making a good investment by putting everything on Jesus. That's what he wants them to come away from this with, confident that Jesus is the right bet. And he starts, we're going to take it in three sections. The first section he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And the major theme in that passage, the main point in that first section, is that Jesus has always ruled over all of creation. That's the point that he's making, is that Jesus has always ruled, all along he has ruled over all of creation. You can see in each of these sections that everything in this passage connects back to that idea. First of all, when he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Where do we hear image language, image of God language in the Bible? In Genesis 1, in creation, when God created human beings in his image. Now, what does that imagery mean? Well, if you bear the image of a ruler, that means you bear their authority. We do this today. When you go to the federal building, whose picture is on the wall of every federal building? The president's. Every federal building has a picture of the sitting president because it's a symbol that the, fe- the federal officers are wielding the authority of the president. president is the head of the executive branch. They work for him. So that's his image in the building reminding everybody of who's actually the power behind everything they're doing. This is the same thing that the imagery language in the Old Testament means. When it says they were made in his image, they were made as his representatives. Now, unfortunately, it turns out that human beings are really bad at being the image of God when we're left to ourselves. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the ultimate 
image of God. He is the ultimate bearer of God's authority. He is the one who, who, if you don't look at Adam to see God's authority and God's character, look at Jesus. He is the image bearer of God, ultimately. And actually, as we learn to be image bearers of God in the New Testament, Paul will have us learn that through Jesus. Now, the next clause is one of those that gets a little tricky. When you bring, if you do use Colossians to debate with someone who thinks that Jesus is a created being, they might bring up the next part, which says the, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, that sure sounds like he is one of the created things, and he's the first one. We'll get in the, in the next clause, we'll see why that's not consistent with, Paul, with what Paul is saying. But if Jesus is not a created thing, why would Paul use firstborn language? Well, because the term firstborn means two things. In our culture, it really just means the, when you, you know, the order you were born in. But back then, it always meant a position of authority. It always meant a position of priority. The firstborn always got the double inheritance and carried on the family name. So to be the firstborn was to be the inheritor, to be the one in charge, to be the bearer of authority. You could do this even when you adopted someone. It was important to know who was the firstborn because they got treated very differently from everyone else. And in fact, God uses firstborn language to talk about Israel in the Old Testament, even though they're like one of the last nations that actually becomes a nation in the Old Testament. But he calls them his firstborn because of that position of priority in his plan. So when he says that Jesus is his firstborn, that means Jesus is, again, the ruler. He's in charge. He has a special authority that cannot be challenged. The way we know that he doesn't mean Jesus is the first created thing is because the very next thing he says is everything was created by him. Everything was created by him. All things, that have, been, all things have been created through him and for him, and by him all things hold together. Now, it's very difficult to say those things about someone who is a created thing, that they created all things and that they, everything was created for them and that they hold it all together. What Paul is saying in completely unequivocal terms is that Jesus stands outside of creation. He is an instrument of creation, that he created everything, and it was, he created it for himself. And not only did he make it, but he didn't make it like a, and set it going like a watch. Like he's continuing to hold it together. He is intimately involved in sustaining creation. So the theme of all of this, again, is Jesus is, has created everything. He sustains everything. He is the ruler. He is in charge. Now, why is that so important? Well, you can see the reason why he's bringing this up when you look at the parts of creation that he calls out. The ones he specifically lists. Because he could have said, you know, Jesus is the power over storms and, you know, hurricanes and volcanoes and forces of nature and things like that. Or the, but what he says is, he lists the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What he's doing is he's specifically calling out the powers that the, that the Colossians would have been tempted to worship. Now, in the ancient world, there was a very dotted line between religion and politics. And so he is talking about Zeus and Caesar. Because in the Roman mind, you know, Zeus or uh, Caesar was descended from Jupiter or 
Aphrodite, um, Venus. Anyway, the, Caesar was descended from a god. Caesar, and, and when he died, they would make him a god in his own right. And you could worship Caesar, and Caesar was in charge because the gods wanted him to be in charge. So it was all n- twisted up into this one little un- knot that can't be untied. And that's how religion and politics have been for all of human history until very recently. So when he talks about the visible and the invisible, the thrones or dominions or p- rulers or authorities, he's talking about the temples and the gods and the kings and all those powers that they would be tempted to invest in. He's talking about that whole stock market. And what he's basically saying is, there's no point in diversifying your portfolio because Jesus rules over all of them. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians. He says, Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. See, the Christians never could all agree on whether other gods existed or not. Some of them thought there were no gods, that there were just nothing, and others thought maybe there were demons behind it. And Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what is out there. Whatever is out there, it all answers to Jesus. It's all under his authority. If it continues to exist, it is because Jesus continues to hold it together. So what he's saying is, none of these other powers can add anything to your portfolio. Don't think that worshiping Caesar can make you better off than just worshiping Jesus, because Caesar is alive today only because Jesus continues to hold together the molecules of his body. Caesar's not going to add anything to your portfolio, because Jesus rules over everything. So there are no powers that can add anything to Jesus. There are no spiritual powers, there are no earthly powers that can add anything to him. So that's reason one why you can completely and should completely invest in Jesus. Now in the next section, he's going to shift from creation to the new creation. He says, Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now the point of this passage, as he shifts to the new creation, is to say that Jesus has the full power and authority to reconcile the world to God. There is no other possible way to be reconciled to God, that God has chosen Jesus as the one way for humanity to be reconciled. And again, repeatedly throughout this passage, we see language being used to underscore that point. First of all, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, meaning that whatever ability the church has to connect with God and to be reconciled to God comes through Jesus. Anything, so the church is not some separate way to God. There isn't Jesus and then the church. Jesus is over the church, and the church can only do, connect with God through Jesus. But also, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. So he's the firstborn of original creation, but he's also the firstborn of the resurrection, which again gives you that place of special priority. That if, if you're going to find out how to get resurrected, there's only one person you can ask. Jesus is the one who has been resurrected. He was the first one. 
And, and there isn't a way, like if he tells you this is the path to resurrection, you've got to believe him. There is, he's the firstborn. He's the first one. He is the resurrection um, par excellence, right? He is the one that God, he raised him in order to show us all what resurrection is about. And then he says something interesting. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. That language doesn't mean much, doesn't trigger us very much in our memories because we're working with an English Bible. But, you remember last week we talked about if you were fluent in ancient Greek and you had been raised, in, uh, instead of the King James Bible, you would have had the um, Septuagint, was their ancient translation of the Old Testament in Greek. That would have triggered some memories, that phrase. Because when you go to Psalm 68, verse 16, it says, depending on your translation, this is the Christian Standard Bible, it says, Why gaze with envy, you mountain peaks, at the mountain God desired for his abode? The Lord will dwell there forever. Doesn't necessarily jump out at you very much. But here's an English translation of the Septuagint version. What is what Paul would have been using and the people in his church would have been using. Why do you think, O conceitedly, O formed mountain, the mountain that God was pleased to live in it? Indeed, the Lord will dwell completely. That's a unique phrase. It's only used once in the New Testament, that God was pleased to dwell. And the only other place we can really find it is in Psalm 68, in reference to the temple. It also makes sense because the temple was the place that was full of God's glory, right? Ezekiel says, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now we're going to see this come up later on, but what essentially is happening here is that this is not Paul addressing whether or not Jesus is God. He's addressing, it's, he's, his target is actually Jewish Christians who say, Yeah, Jesus got us forgiven, but our way to God is still through the temple. They're still using the rituals as a way to get around actual loyalty to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, Jesus, what, what Paul is saying is, Jesus did not come to just clear the slate so you can go back to the temple. God has invested his presence fully in Jesus. The temple is empty. There's nothing there. God is going to make that point very clear when he has it destroyed. But what he's saying is that there are no substitutes for giving your allegiance to Jesus. Because it's a lot easier to just follow those rituals and make those religious gestures and then go off and lead my life the way I want. Right? As long as I pay my 10% into the offering, I can spend the other 90 however I want. Because I've done the ritual, I've done the, made the gesture, and that puts me in good with God. And now I don't have to be loyal to him outside of that. That's the temptation of that ritualistic way of accessing God's presence. And what Paul says is, yeah, that doesn't work. Because God's done with the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. The temple, you know, he have lots of other places where he talks about Jesus and the church being the home of the Holy Spirit. But the temple is done for. It doesn't matter. It does you no good to be ritually clean enough to get into the temple. What matters is, are you following Jesus? There are no workarounds. 
And that's why he then goes from that passage to say this. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. He's saying, yes, Jesus, God has put all the power to reconcile people to him into Jesus. And therefore, he does have the power to carry through on that promise, right? You can, if you invest in him, that investment will pay out. If, ooh, if, he says, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. Notice what he's saying is that the gods are not the danger. Upsetting a god is, because like, the pagans lived in constant fear of upsetting a god that they didn't know about. That's why, if you remember the story about Paul, and they have the, the, in Athens, they have the statue to the unknown god. And it's because they were terrified that they might miss one, right, and make them angry. And Paul's saying, that's not the problem. The danger isn't that you might not worship um, some god out there. Worshiping other gods is the problem. Investing in other stocks is the problem. And that's actually what will take you away from reconciliation with God. It is if you, it's completely the opposite of that instinct to hedge your bets and to play the stock market. You cannot be reconciled to God if you invest in any other stocks, if you try to get to me in any other way. So Jesus will reconcile you to God if you commit to him alone. Now, this is something that we don't like to hear. We never liked to hear this, but especially in our culture today, this is very uh, unpopular to say. Because after all, don't all religions lead to God? I will tell you this. If all religions lead to God, then God is not a person. God doesn't have a personality. God does not have a character. Because, all, because if you look at the different religions, they're all trying to do different things. Right? Like if you go to a Buddhist and you say, how can I be saved from my sin? They'll say, I can't save you from your sin. Sin isn't the problem. Existence is the problem. Right? Like they have a completely different understanding of the problem of humanity and the solution to it. And as you look at the different religions, they're all doing that. We have different ideas of the problem and the solution. If all of those work, then that really means none of them work, and God has no actual character to him. Then it's just like, well, you tried hard enough, and that's all I care about. Right? Like that, and that's, that means that heaven's going to be just like this. It's going to be all the same problems. But... Reconciliation with God is not about passing a test or trying hard enough. It's reconciliation. It's a relationship with a person, God, who has a character and a personality. So I want you to imagine that I behaved in my marriage the way Paul is warning them not to behave in their relationship with God. What if I decided to conduct my marriage by uh, playing the stock market? Right? Like, I love my wife, but, you know, there's a high divorce rate these days, so maybe I should have some girlfriends on the side just to make sure, right? Is that going to help me be reconciled with my wife? Absolutely not. Let's say that I take the, the temple worship approach, and I say, as long as I hit the Hallmark holidays, 
we'll be fine. As long as, you know, birthday, anniversary, Valentine's Day, you know. It's funny, I wrote an article for the newsletter about how much I like September, and I completely forgot to mention that our anniversary is in September. I had all these things that were going on in the church in September, and I forgot to mention our anniversary is in September. So clearly, the Hallmark approach is not working for me. But that's not how you reconcile a relationship, right? So the whole reason why these things don't work is because they aren't reconciliation. What it means to be a part of God's kingdom is to be on the same page as him, to be a part of his agenda, to to be building his style kingdom, not building my own. And there are no other ways to do that. There is no substitution for being reconciled to God. So playing the stock market doesn't work, and going through the motions doesn't work. You have to actually be reconciled, and the only way to be reconciled is through Jesus Christ, through loyalty to Jesus Christ, through leading the life that pleases him. That's what it means to be reconciled to him. It doesn't mean that you have to lead a good enough life to get in, but it means to to put your faith in Jesus, to, to join his kingdom, means that you are serving his cause. And so that's supposed to be leading you toward a godly life. That is supposed to be leading you towards building his kingdom. It's supposed to be changing you. So this is what Paul is telling him. He says, ignore all the temptation to do the temple worship. Ignore the temptation to play the stock market of all the other gods. Just focus on Jesus because that investment will pay out and it is the only one that will pay out. So let's take this into our context now. Here's where it gets uncomfortable. It's easy when we're talking about Zeus because nobody here is tempted to worship Zeus, right? Let me, well, maybe, I don't know, but it's Oregon. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you these questions, okay? Question number one, how are you hedging your bets? Because we may not have Zeus in this world, but we definitely have a lot of powers that we rely on to uh, save us from the things we're afraid of, to form our identities, Idolatry is alive and well. So what, what are you investing in? And the, the question, uh, maybe the way to approach this is what are the things that you will, um, you would behave in an ungodly way to keep from losing it? What are the things that are so important in your life that you would hate another person over it? that you would, it would turn the other person into an enemy instead of a potential brother or sister in Christ? What are the things that you would hold on to at the expense of the kingdom? I dare say we all have them. It's a lifelong battle to get our allegiance completely behind Jesus. How are you hedging your bets? Maybe I'm not close with God, but man, I'm doing great in my career. Man, my bank account is, is sizable. Man, I've, I've accumulated power. I've, I've, you know, whatever the things are, how are you hedging your bets? And number two is how are you trying to substitute gestures for loyalty? Ritualism is also still alive and well. Like I said, I put my 10% in the plate so I can do whatever I want with the other 90. That's not actually what the Bible says. All of your money belongs to God. 
every dollar you're supposed to spend according to his will. Now, part of his will is for you to, to be invested in the work of the body. Part of his will is for you to support the needs of your family. But every dollar is supposed to be subservient to God, right? But we'll say, well, I've done this gesture. I went to church on Sunday morning, so the rest of the week is mine. I read the Bible, so the rest of the day is mine. Like, we, we go through those gestures, and we say, oh, that's good enough. I don't actually have to be loyal to Jesus with the rest of my time, with the rest of my resources, with the rest of my thoughts. And once you've thought over those and squirmed a bit, as I know I did writing those questions, then the third question is, what does it look like to commit your life to Jesus alone? Because this moment right now, every moment when the Spirit puts a part of your life in front of you that needs to be changed is an opportunity. How many of you have had that kind of a moment with the same problem over and over and over again, and it's like the 300th time before you finally do something about it? That's my story. Encounter after encounter after encounter where God took this problem in my life and put it right in my face. I'll get to it later. This moment is a chance for you to make a decision, to take a step, to move forward in your relationship with Jesus. So don't let it pass you by. The biggest, most important step you could be contemplating right now is giving your life to Jesus in the first place. And if that's where you are today, take that step. Take it now. If you're here, you can come forward during the last song or you can talk to me after the service. If you're online, you can get in touch with the church or you can talk to a Christian that you know and trust. But don't let this moment pass. Maybe you have given your life to Jesus, but you realize, man, I really need to let go of some idols. I really need to let go of some rituals. Today is the best day for you to recommit your life to Jesus. Maybe you're feeling like, I don't even know what the idols are. I need to know more about what it looks like to be completely loyal to Jesus. That's why we have our discipleship classes and our small groups. You can grab the green card in front of you, fill that out, and drop it in one of the boxes, and we'll follow up with you so we can get you plugged in to be part of our church, the way our church family equips each other for this walk. And maybe what God is telling you is that he's ready, he wants you to put boots on the ground to, to be serving people in tangible ways, that's what our blue cards are for. We have lots of opportunities for you to do that. And you can fill out one of those cards and drop it in the box at the back. But I encourage you, whatever God is putting on your heart, maybe something that I am nowhere near touching on, whatever he's putting on your heart, don't let this moment pass so that it has to come around again. Take that step with Jesus today. I invite you to stand now as we sing our communion hymn.